the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. An example of what Christian nationalism is not, and then something you shouldn't say from the pulpit. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this February the 26th, this Monday afternoon. Hope that you had a great weekend and we are excited to be together. This is the most Chicago week of winter-spring mix that you'll ever see. Lots of uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram posts of uh, looking at the five-day forecast with Chicago's drunk or Chicago's lost its mind. 70 degrees with some strong storms possible tomorrow. 30 degrees on Wednesday. That's all you need to know about this time of year in Chicago. So enjoy today, enjoy tomorrow, bundle up Wednesday, then it settles out on Thursday, and we'll all be sick because uh, we just our bodies were not meant to handle this kind of weather ups and downs. All right, all right, here's where I want to start our show today. The the term Christian nationalism, this is something that I've talked about a lot on this show, and I do believe you're seeing it get ramped up. This is going to be one of the main talking points as we head towards the election. Christian nationalism. There was a super long article in the Politico the other day about Christian nationalism and how it's going to shape the Trump campaign. Uh, and in, ironically, one of the main people chronicled in it and spoken against by the by Politico was a guy by the name of Russ Vogt, who worked in the Trump administration. Some people think he could be as high as Trump's chief of staff. Lived two doors down from me at Wheaton my freshman year. We were uh, we were buddies, so haven't talked to him in a while. But it's interesting to see him taking such a prominent role. But part of this is that language matters because I think the term Christian nationalism, much like we talked about a few weeks ago with the term woke, has lost its meaning. People have now weaponized it to say whatever they want it to say, to cloak whatever they want to cloak in uh, to get people riled up. So if you and I are having a debate within the church about whatever topic we want, and in many circles, if I were to call you woke, uh, that all of a sudden is going to get you on your heels. That all of a sudden is going to get people thinking certain things about you that may not be true. The umbrella underneath the term woke uh, of all the different meanings of what different people believe uh, mean by that when they say it is just growing by the day. And I think we're having that same issue now with the term Christian nationalism. At its heart, I think that there is, you've heard me talk about this, I think there's an issue with this thing called Christian nationalism at its core. It's this idea uh, that we live in a Christian nation, 
that ultimately we should be striving to get um, primarily Christians and Christian values and Christian thought into the uh, into our political system. So um, I want because I believe in Christian values, I, I, I like to see them embedded in what we do. But the, it starts to blur that line of the separation of church and state that um, that we that's not the goal. And so you start to see Christianity and empire really kind of bl- the lines blurred between the two. And that's where the danger comes in, not only for the country, but for the church. I'm most concerned about the church here. And when Christians put their hopes in what we can do in the government or through the government, if we just get enough Christians in the government, if we just get then uh, it Christians kind of become the nexus of power and we can usher in almost this kind of Christian utopia. And we've seen that try to get played out over the centuries, and it never goes well. So Christians should definitely be involved in politics. We should be voting, but that's not our ultimate goal as the church. We are we are set apart. But there was an example this weekend of where this is just this conversation has gone off the rails. And I would warn you, as we move towards November, this Two-word term, Christian nationalist, is going to get thrown around, especially by the Democrats, a lot as a scare tactic. Because it's like what I just said about woke, right? If they're going to call Christian nationalists anybody who uh, doesn't believe in abortion, anybody uh, who wants, say, school choice or has ideas about what's going on in school, anyone who carries kind of a orthodox traditional view of marriage or sexuality, all of these things – you're now going to be labeled something that I don't think is fair as Christian nationalists. So that is the buildup to an audio clip that went nuts around Twitter this weekend. It's at currently at seven and a half million views. It was on MSNBC. And this was uh, an investigative journalist from Politico talking about Christian nationalism. I want you to hear it. Let's listen to this. The one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, Mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. So what's the problem here? Well, I would fundamentally say the goalpost is getting moved here. The issue here for instance, is that Thomas Jefferson wrote in our founding documents that our inalienable rights are from our creator. They're uh, imbued by our creator. There is God language throughout our founding documents. And so we've now reached the point uh, where um, some of our founding fathers would be termed Christian nationalists. No, I think they had the right distinction, but they said our rights were given to us by God and not by the state, and that the government is there to protect them and to make sure that they happen. Uh, here's why this is so important, and albeit from me to turn this into a political show, but here's why this is important. Uh, 
if the government is the ultimate giver of rights, the government can therefore take away your rights. But that there are specific rights about the value of people, about the worth of people that are given to us by God, by our creator, and not by our government. And that might sound like it's it's nitpicking it up a little bit, but it's not. This is actually a big deal. And what happens, you start moving towards authoritarianism if if it's the government who ultimately gives us our rights and our values and all of that stuff. We need government to stay in its lane and the church to stay in its lane. And when the church is coming too far and, and putting their hopes in the wrong spots, those are the places where we do call it out. But this clip right there, shows just how far this has gone. Literally, our founding documents, our founding documents speak of the values and the worth given to us by our creator, not by our government. And so, church, I do think we need to, we need to do a good job doing what the church does, but also push back against this sort of language and be ready, many of you, uh, within the church may very well find yourself with the title Christian nationalist this election season. All right. Uh, I'm a pastor, so I didn't speak at our church this past weekend, but the vast majority of times I, I get to get up on in a pulpit and I get to speak and I, I feel the gravity of that, but also the honor of that. And um, every now and then you see a clip of a pastor saying something that you're like, what are you thinking? And normally uh, it comes when the pastor goes off script, you, the clip I'm about to say, show you, you could tell it, it, this guy goes off script. Secondly, it often comes when they say, I probably shouldn't say this. Hey, this is a good rule of thumb for anybody out there. If your sentence begins I probably shouldn't say this. And I'm not talking about just public speaking. I'm talking about when you talk to your spouse and your kids, when you're talking in a group, if in a meeting, if your statement begins with, I probably shouldn't say this, take your own advice. Don't say it. If you believe I probably shouldn't say this, or you say something like this probably isn't appropriate, or I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, shut your mouth. Don't say it. Take your own warning. And that's what happened with this pastor. This pastor is an old guy. Uh, pastor Bobby Leonard of Bible Baptist Tabernacle in Monroe, North Carolina. And the issue that he's speaking to, uh, he's about 50 years late on this one. Like this was a debate, I would suppose, generations before my time. But it also gets to the issue of modesty and um, which I suppose is a fair conversation to have. But also old guy probably making the public statements about what girls should or shouldn't wear. Probably also a bad thing. But what he says here is um, it's deplorable. It's dangerous, it's misogynistic, and it speaks to the problem 
of how we've set up purity culture, letting men and boys off the hook. So in some ways, he said the quiet part out loud here. So this is uh, he has since apologized. I will bring I will uh, share that apology as well. But a lot of times the first thing that comes out is what you really mean. So let's listen to this. Uh, this is Pastor Bobby Leonard at Bible Baptist Tabernacle Tabernacle in Monroe, North Carolina. You find more women go in those places with shorts than you will women with pants and dresses put together. Try it. If you got time, try it. Have your boy go up there and try it. Just watch for it. Have your girl go up there and watch for it. And you know, uh, I, I used to say this. You know, I haven't said this in a long time. You ready? I said, if, if you dress like that and you get raped and I'm on the jury, he's going to go free. Now, you don't like, do you? I'm right, though. I, I can't help you like I'm right. Because, you know, a man's a man. So he's talking about seeing women wearing shorts at an outlet mall. Again, this feels like uh, a conversation that was going on in the 1930s, the 1950s not 2024. But in case you didn't hear what he said, he said, if you dress like that and you get raped and I'm on the jury, he's going to go free. You don't like that, do you? I'm right, though, because a man is a man. A man is a man. So I kind of set this up almost as if like, oh, buddy, you can't do this. But what he has said is reprehensible is reprehensible. Anybody out there who believes, anybody who's out there who believes that a woman being in shorts justifies her getting raped because a man can't control himself, you're wrong. And you need to repent of what you're saying because You're giving license to, oh, boys will be boys. Men will be. No, men are not animals. Men, you can control yourself. And what a woman wears does not determine how you act. And it's unbelievable that in 2024, we need to say that. Now, I think there's legitimate conversations to be had for men and women about dress, about um you know, respect or what's appropriate. Those are fine conversations to have. But from a pulpit to say, basically what he said was, if you women wear shorts to the outlet mall, you deserve to get raped is mind boggling. Now, Pastor Leonard, the next day posted an apology on their church marquee Uh, saying, I'm sorry for any hurt, I was wrong. Uh, But you'd start to wonder if he believes he was wrong because of the number of media outlets that ran the story, Newsweek, Huffington Post, uh, Twitter stuff, like uh, it first came out of Bad Preacher clips. Uh, It's been viewed millions upon millions of times. Local North Carolina news stations picked it up. So this does make you wonder if this was an apology uh, 
for PR purposes. But he wrote a letter to his congregation. I want to express my deep regret for the statements made from the pulpit. I'm only beginning to understand the hurt and offense caused, and I take full responsibility for my words. As a pastor, I failed to uphold the biblical values of love and compassion. I apologize for the pain caused and commit to learning from making this foolish and sinful statement. Bible Baptist Tabernacle and I unequivocally stand on the biblical position that rape under any circumstances is a heinous crime to be punished severely and is never excusable. He said, I want our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be glorified through my life. He deserves my best, not my worst. And he asked for forgiveness. So, fair. Uh, you hope that he did learn a lesson. The very fact that... Uh, uh, the very fact that you need to stay say in a statement that we believe that rape under any circumstances is reprehensible tells you what the problem is. And this goes back this friends, this goes back to when this was like kind of what I was taught sometimes when we get the purity lesson in church and stuff. The boys will be boys. So girls, you got to be careful they can't control what goes into their eyes once they see so men you're not an animal you are a man you have control we are called to treat women with respect right you have control over your what he seems to think are our primal urges and women i think it's worth having the conversation about dress and purity and this and that i just don't think it needs to be old guys from a pulpit talking about it i think women can have this conversation with other women within the church and men can have this conversation and there could be actual dialogue about it but these types of things need to be in the strongest terms spoken down and say this is not only cause pain this is dangerous there could be a guy sitting in that congregation going Man, my pastor just gave me license. He just gave me license. And we cannot be that. As men, this is primarily about men. Men, you're not an animal. Don't, don't believe what people say about this types of th stuff. Uh, you're, you not only need to have agency, but uh, in Christ, we don't have to act like this it's just craziness just craziness hopefully you had a good weekend and part of it was worship part of it was able to be a part of your church community again uh, we're gonna bang this drum all the time if you're not part of a local church community we would encourage you to do so to become part of one uh, i i don't think that we can uh, have growing faith in jesus christ quite frankly i think it's it's necessity. It is part of who we are to be with other people who will spur us on to loving good deeds. Again, it could look different than other people, what they think of church. Like there's, there's variation under that. But if you're not part of a community that's pushing you along, then uh, I would um, lovingly tell you that that needs to change. And I'd encourage you to do so. All right. Uh, I teased this earlier. I was up super, super early today. So um, my son had his first baseball practice today over at Wheaton Academy. He plays at Wheaton Academy and uh, he had to be at school 
at 5.45 in the morning. And now he always likes to get there early. Uh, he wants to, you know, make sure that everything goes well. So really, he was targeting kind of 5.30, 5.35. We live a good 25 minutes from the school. So you do the math so that he could have some breakfast and get his stuff ready, although we packed it the night before. He needed to leave. He needed to be up at 4.45. Now, you might be thinking, well, your son can drive. Tell him to set an alarm and go, totally get it. That's just not how I work. Like, even if we had said, you get up, it was an important enough day, the first day of practice. I know he was a little, had some, you know, excited and anxious butterflies that, even if I told them set your alarm, I would have still gotten up. I, it's just I don't sleep well when, you know, when they got to get up for something. So I told them, hey, I'll get up with you at 445. I'll help you, you know, take whatever to the, you need out to the car. Make sure you got everything. And so uh, my alarm went off. And here's what's weird for me. Are you like this? When I have an alarm set for early, I start waking up. It's like my body knows. So I start waking up at 2 o'clock and looking at my, at my uh, clock. 3.30, 4.15, and uh, you never really sleep well. But I got out of bed at 4.40. His alarm went off. We both kind of got out, and he did great. He was all excited. He ate some breakfast, got on the road. But then he's on the road at 5.10, and I'm awake. So I had a choice. I could go back to bed, which felt kind of lazy. Um. I could, I, I actually started planning some stuff for the show at 5.15 in the morning. I got my computer out. Uh, but it is, some of you always get up that early. I'm an early riser, but not that early. I'm usually up at 6 o'clock, 6.15. And so uh, I decided last night I'm going to pack a bag and I am going to go to export. That's where we have a membership, a gym. Uh, I'm going to go to export. And so I did that this morning. I got up. Uh, he got out. Uh, I did a couple things for the show. And then I, I drove over to export. I was there by 6 a.m. So first thing I learned, I'd never been to the gym that early. First thing I learned was uh, a lot of people go to the gym at 6 a.m. It, uh, it was not empty. We'll put it that way. It wasn't overly crowded, but it was not empty. Uh, the second thing I figured out is I really enjoyed it. Dare I say, I might be turning into early workout guy. Because once I get my day going, I don't like stopping in the day or later in the day going to work out or something. It just doesn't happen. And so that early felt like found time. Like I was back in my car driving down to church at like 740 in the morning. And you're like, I kind of found a bunch of time here. But I want to talk about the gym. Let me transition to talking about the gym. Let's talk positively first. The positive side of things is this. It really does make you feel good. It's hard for many. And some of you, you like live for the gym. But for the majority of us, it's hard to get yourself going. It's hard to get there. There's always an excuse, right? There's always a reason not to go. So it felt really good to work out and to get the blood moving. I go and sit in the hot tub afterwards, those kinds of to take a shower and then go out feeling like, okay, I could go attack my day feeling good. Like sometimes self-discipline 
and I'm not the most self-disciplined guy in the world, but sometimes self-discipline, whether it's working out, reading your Bible, whatever else it might be, sometimes self-discipline is just doing it. Just doing it. I don't feel like going to the gym. I don't feel like doing it. Just get in the car, pack the bag, get in the car, go and do it. I don't feel like reading my Bible and praying today. I got all these other things. Just do it. Just do it. The old Nike phrase, right? I think it works for our lives, including our faith. Sometimes we take the posture of just do it. What are you holding out on? What do you wish you were doing? But you don't really, you can't get over that hump. Can I be super simplistic and tell you just do it? Oh, my wife and I, we should go on a date more often. We should just do it. Go and do it. Couple other quick observations about the my gym time this morning. One, all right, get off my lawn guy here for this one. Maybe I'm not even get off the lawn guy here. Maybe you completely agree with me. I saw three different people working out in just socks. One of them was literally using a machine where you're like, it was like a leg machine. So you're uh, you're pushing against something just in socks. I saw another guy uh, just free lifting just in socks. And my first thought was like, that's gross. Am I wrong about that? Is that, is that, is that not a foul? Cause when I saw it going on, I was like, uh, that's weird. So socks in the gym, weird. Number two, and I'm going to tread on ground here that I just spoke against in the last segment. So, um, I'm just going to put it out there and leave it there. Some women and some men, at least at the export I go to, need to wear more clothing. It's uh, it's a pretty striking sometimes. I feel like I could say it because I'm lumping some men into that as well. Uh, maybe they're there for different purposes, but uh, a little more clothing. Number three. Let me tell you the last thing that happened to me today. Export is set up. You go into the locker room, and it's uh, kind of sets of like 20 lockers and almost like a five by eight, six by 10 area with a bench in the middle. So you're kind of, oh, and then there's like five or six or maybe more of them. And you're always looking for the spot where there's nobody else. So I, when I got a locker, there was nobody else there. But when I came back from uh, working out, there was an old guy there sitting on the bench naked, looking at Facebook. That's an old guy thing to do. I could do an entire show of stories from when I used to work at the Wheaton Sports Center in college. But we were in like a confined area. And he's sitting on the bench on a towel, sitting on the bench, completely naked, looking at his phone and looking at Facebook. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not okay. That's not okay. So the guy seemed like he was relaxed and doing maybe get dressed first and then sit there and read Facebook. Maybe do whatever you're going to do. Go take a shower, whatever, and then do it. So uh, I think I win on that one. I think I've, I've got no worry. I might be wrong about some of the other statements, the socks and whatever else I said, but the guy on the bench, 
Like, uh, just need to know you made my time a little bit uncomfortable there today, big guy. You made you made my time uh, a little bit uncomfortable, and uh, maybe not do that the next time. All right, I'll let you know tomorrow if I get up early and go again. My streak is one. So uh, we'll see if I can do it again tomorrow. One of the best preachers you might remember months or years, probably a year ago, Aubrey and I did a Mount Rushmore of of evangelical preachers, evangelical pastors. And one guy that I, I had on, and I think Aubrey did too, uh, was Dr. Tony Evans. You can hear Tony Evans here on AM 1160. Uh, but just a wonderful man of God out of Texas. And uh, he's the one of the guys who I heard him speak in person at a some sort of banquet. This is going on 10 years ago, probably. And when he was done, I had such I was so inspired and thought to myself also, I can never preach again because this guy is unbelievable. I'm not doing remotely the same thing this guy's doing. Just a gifted, gifted preacher. So he he tweeted about pain the other day. And Tony Evans knows something of pain, right? His his wife passed away of cancer sometime within the last three to five years, I would say. Um, but let me read to you what he wrote. Tony Evans wrote on Twitter, your pain is real, but so is your hope. And because of that hope, you can find joy even in your darkest moments. Trust Jesus, draw near to him. Your pain is real, but so is your hope. And because of that hope, you can find joy even in your darkest moments. Trust Jesus, draw near to him. So the first part of that tweet, I think, is so important. So often in churches, we demonize pain. We pretend that it doesn't exist. A good Christian doesn't struggle. A good Christian doesn't hurt. But you go through life long enough, and it becomes abundantly clear pain is part of our reality. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, whatever else it is, pain is real. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have pain. It's part of our reality. But pain isn't ultimate, Evans goes on to say, but so is your hope. Your pain is real, but so is your hope. This is also something we get wrong. When we are in pain, when we are in despair, we, we speak of hope, but we don't believe that it is real. We don't believe that it exists. So again, in churches, we will often give lip service to things like hope, but we will not really embrace it. No, Evan says, your hope is real. So let's back up and go, what is that real hope then? If our hope is real, then what is it really? Friends, our hope is not in the pain going away. In the near term, in this world, you will have trouble. But our hope is in the second part of that verse, but I have overcome the world. That's the words of Jesus. Jesus says, but I have overcome the world. Take heart. The, the answer is that in Christ, we have hope. 
The answer is that in Christ, we can endure. The answer is that Jesus said, I will be with you always. That the book of Psalm, God says that he is near to the brokenhearted. That we can find hope in the presence of God, but we ultimately find our hope in the victory of Christ. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of the, the sting of sin is death, and the power uh, of death is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us our victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next verse says, "So therefore, stand firm." Let nothing move you. Basically, have hope. Where does our hope lie? What makes it real in the words of Tony Evans and not some fake thing that we just talk about here on ch- in churches? It's real because of Jesus. It's real because Jesus came into this sinful, broken earth And he won the victory. He said, all is different now. Everything changed when Jesus came. And therefore, death is not ultimate. Pain is not ultimate. Cancer is not ultimate. Relationship breakdowns are not ultimate. But the book of Revelation says that there is coming a day when there will be no more tears, and there will be no more struggle, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more death. That's what makes our hope real. The presence of Jesus and the promised victory of Jesus. And so we can face our pains with that truth. And Evans goes on to say, because of that hope, because of the hope that we have in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can find joy even in your darkest moments. Trust Jesus, draw near to him. There's the, He brings up that issue of joy. Remember, joy is different than happiness. But why can we find joy even in our darkest moments? Because in, even in the darkest moments, we have hope. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, that is the, the book of the Bible that uses the word joy more than any other, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's out of the book of Philippians where we find that verse. And Paul writes that letter. He writes Philippians when he is chained to a Roman prison facing possible execution. And it is in the midst of that great hardship that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He speaks of the joy of the Lord. Why could Paul speak of that joy even when he was facing possible death? Why? Because we read in Philippians uh, chapter one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had a perspective of hope. He was not defined by the hardships, but he had hope in Christ. And so Dr. Tony Evans tells us, So trust Jesus, trust Jesus and draw near to him. Trust Jesus and draw near to him. Friends, are you struggling today? Are you facing real evil and real pain? It's real and feeling hopeless. You can have hope. 
anchored in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated. Death is not ultimate, but that we have hope both now and eternal. Such good words there from Dr. Tony Evans. I pray that they have blessed you uh, and that you, uh, can re- you can live in that. You can trust Jesus and draw near to him. Something that we feel really picking up right now, something that is dominating conversation, is our politics. You might have heard there's a presidential election this year, and people are parsing things that both candidates are saying and trying to figure out, are we really going to do this again? Uh, are we really doing Trump v uh, versus uh, Biden again? Is this really what's happening again? But sure seems like it is. Uh, and President Trump, former President Trump, spoke the other day uh, at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville's Opryland Resort and Convention Center. Packed out ballroom of people like myself, radio and television people, t- radio and television preachers, communicators. And President Trump uh, knows his kind of audience. And so this was a good spot for him to be. And he described himself as a friend and fellow believer and somebody um, who is good. This is coming from Bob Smetana, who is going to take up the the cause for the Christians when he's in, back in office. And there were good things that he said. Again, you might listen to the show and think that uh, I'm just anti-Trump and all of this stuff. Uh, I have real problems with some of the things he says, and I have real problems with some of the things he said in this speech that we're about to point out. But I get why people vote for him. I am no fan of President Biden and and a lot of the things that the Democrats are doing in our state and around the country. So I get it. I don't fully get like the cult of personality that 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 I know of people in my own life and others that you'll see around him as a candidate. But I understand people who vote for him. This isn't a don't vote for him or don't vote for the other guy. You do what you got to do. But I do think it's important that we as as Christians take a critical eye to things that politicians say, specifically to Christians, to us, to the church. Because there are certain things that they say that sound really great, but that when you unpack them, you go, uh, that's problematic. So I want to read one or two things that he said in his speech the other day to the uh, national religious broadcasters and ask uh, and just ask, what do you think? So here's the biggest one that I want us to wrestle with. Uh, former President Trump said this, if I get in, so that's a reelected, if I get in, you, that being the national religious people, the Christians, you're going to be using that power at a level that you've never used before. So really dangerous word for us as Christians in that sentence. That word is power. President Trump said, if I get in, you, the Christians, are going to be using that power, that power that he's going to restore as the triumphant return of Christianity to power in American culture. 
He says, you're going to get, you're going to be using that power at a level you've never used before. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that something that the people in that audience should have cheered or should have given this pause? I would suggest that that's a red flag. That the way of Jesus is not the way of looking for political power. That, again, vote for your preferred candidate. I get that. But the goal for the Christian is not power. Does that make sense? And so, again, when you hear this, you go, yes, amen. Vote for him. But friends, the goal is not that we as Christians have power to leverage in our culture, in our politics, in our and why do I say that? Because I think power is such a, a dangerous word because throughout the Bible, Jesus emptied himself of the power that he deserved. Jesus did not come in power. Jesus came in service and self-sacrifice to the point of dying on the cross. The book of Philippians then tells us, that we are to model our lives in humility with the way that Jesus lived his life of humility. And what's the picture of that? Uh, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. The goal of the, Christ, of the Christian, excuse me, is not power. It's self-sacrifice. It's humility. Every time in the Bible where, the, where people grasp for power. Think about the Pharisees. Think about even Jesus's words to his disciples when they argue who will be next to him in heaven. It becomes problematic. Here's a second one, Trump said. With your help and God's grace, the great revival of America begins on November the 5th. The great revival of America begins on November the 5th. That word revival was used very intentionally by him there. And I would say is at least a yellow flag. I love America. I want to see it do great. But we as Christians are not primarily concerned with the quote unquote revival of America. We are primarily concerned uh, with the revival of the church, with the revival of lives, of the gospel going forth. And the government is not the vehicle for that. So again, if, if, if you want Trump in office on November the 5th, that's your prerogative. That's great. But let's not use terms like revival of America. I think that's confusing and we're blurring the lines. And the last thing he said that I want to bring up was this. We have to bring back our religion. We have to bring back Christianity. Friends, Christianity hasn't gone anywhere. It again is not a politician who quote unquote brings back Christianity. It's the church. 
We're not putting our hope in a politician to bring back Christianity. It hasn't gone anywhere. Globally and nationally, it continues to grow. It continues to spread. The Holy Spirit continues to be at work. And I don't need President Trump. I don't need President Biden. I don't need your favorite politician to carry the flag of Christianity. Every time, friends, we see Christianity and the church get melded and and into the empire, into politics, it always goes badly for the church. And we're going to need to be really careful. We talked earlier about the label of Christian nationalist and what, what Democrats seem to be doing with it. And we need to stand up against it. But we also need to be careful with language like now I'm going to bring power for the Christians. I'm going to bring revival of America. I'm going to bring Christianity back. Besides that being pandering, uh, it's, it's dangerous rhetoric for the church, not for the candidate, not for the nation, but for the church. And for us as Christians, I would I would say that that is dangerous rhetoric. As we close out this Monday afternoon, if you've missed any of the show today, go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And uh, I want to end our show today talking about the church. Uh, the church as um, hopefully each and every one of you out there uh, are a part of a church. You are part of, and you see the value of that. Um, but there was something interesting I read the other day uh, about church. But first, let me read something that made me laugh out loud about churches. You ready? This is from a great Twitter account called Church Curmudgeon. I would really encourage you to follow Church Curmudgeon. Uh, church Curmudgeon wrote this. You shouldn't be able to call your church, quote, First Baptist without there being some sort of playoff. <laughs> I literally laughed out loud the first time I read that. There should be, why can everybody call themselves First Baptist? Is it just by, like, I got here first? Shouldn't there be some sort of a criteria and some sort of uh, some sort of uh, metrics that you get to be First Baptist or Second Baptist or whatever else it might be? But uh, humor notwithstanding, Justin Taylor wrote this in response to Garrett Kell. Uh, Garrett Kell wrote, time to testify today at my church. And he wrote all this great stuff about church, about his church and where he pastors and who was there. Uh, And Justin Taylor wrote this. The church is terrible these days, in quotes. The church is terrible these days is now a cottage industry. So we need quiet testimonies like this. God's work continues changing lives and sustaining the saints through the hardest times. I really resonated with that when I read it, because here's the deal, especially doing a show like this. um, You can really become inundated with all the bad news. You could become inundated with uh, like he, like he says here, the church is terrible. These days is a cottage industry. Now with that said, There's people doing great work 
trying to speak of the of uh, abuse or the things that the church gets wrong, uh, where it embeds itself with politics and all this stuff. This is not a suggestion that we shouldn't be critiquing the church, that we shouldn't be looking to bring greater clarity and purity to the church. That is obviously true, but it walks a fine line to where when you talk to a lot of people, like as Justin Taylor writes here, the church is terrible these days is kind of a mantra. And it's, as he said, a cottage industry with lots of blogs, lots of books, lots of conferences, people making money over just tearing down the church. But the church remains God's plan A. That in all of its struggles, in all of its warts and all of its things that it gets wrong, the church is still the bride of Christ. So we want to see the church doing its best, but we also want to remain hopeful about the church. And so he says one of the ways we do that is through quiet testimonies like Garrett Kell does here. Quiet testimonies of all those churches out there, right? For every mega church, there's, you know, a thousand nice little small churches and just the quiet testimonies in the big churches and the medium churches and the small churches that God's work continues. Lives are being changed. Saints are being sustained through hard times. The church is still active. And friend, that's why I keep saying you need to be a part of a church. It could be a big church. It could be a really tiny church. It could be a traditional church. It could be whatever. But you need to be a part of a church. You need to be a part of a, a, of a fellowship, a community of Christ followers living on mission together. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. To be together, to go and make disciples. Or as the book of Hebrews says, uh, do not give up meeting with one another. That we are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We live in a very individualistic culture that kind of looks sideways at organizations. It's like we expect organizations to be, um, to be shady. But friends, we can't buy into the fact that all churches are broken, that all church is terrible. And you want to know how you learn that? By diving in, investing in a church, getting involved, giving of yourself, knowing other people and being known, sitting under the teaching of the word, worshiping shoulder to shoulder, singing shoulder to shoulder with people that you've committed to. And then doing the hard work. Churches are families, right? That's often the word we use. Well, families are super messy. A lot of times families are really annoying. They're never perfect. And if you think your family's perfect, then you're probably the issue, <laughs> The same thing with the church. What's the old saying, right? If you're looking for the perfect church, you're going to ruin it when you get there. No churches are perfect, but friends, church remains uh, plan A, God's vehicle to the spread of his gospel. And so, yes, let's do the hard work to bring about purity within the church 
uh, gospel fidelity. Let's do our work of making sure the church is living up to its high calling. So yes, let's point out where the big C church, but also where our individual churches are missing the mark. But sometimes that can go way too far and you begin to live in this world where you don't think any church is worth it. I was talking recently off air to somebody who I would say is knee deep in the cottage industry of the church is terrible these days. And not surprisingly, that person told me, yeah, we're not a part of a church anymore. And I felt sad for that person. Friends, all churches, the church is not terrible. It's not perfect. Some churches are better than others. Some churches are worse than others. It's not perfect. But that's not the calling. Perfection is not the calling. Don't buy into the lie that all churches are bad. And all of them have problems, like beyond repair. It's just not true. And it's the enemy's, the enemy's work to tell us and make us believe otherwise. Be a part of a church. Hear the quiet testimonies of God's work continuing, changing lives, sustaining believers through good and through bad together as we run the race to Jesus. Be a part of a church. Dig in. Dive in. And I believe uh, that you will be better off for it. Well, join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. Got lots of guests tomorrow. Going to have lots of great discussion as it's supposed to be 70 degrees. So we're going to just uh, have some fun tomorrow from 4 until 6. Until then, we hope that you have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com